So that's my question. It's, if it's one of those two, either God defines morality and morality is then meaningless because all it means is what God said, or morality does exist objectively outside of God and we don't even need God. So that's my question slash argument and I'm, I'm hoping for some sort of justification for that dilemma from the theists and Christians, if you would indulge me. Thank you, everybody. Good night and good luck. Welcome to Reasonable Faith, Conversations with William Lane Craig. I'm Kevin Harris, and we hope you'll find the topics we discuss enriching and enlightening concerning the big questions of life. Dr. William Lane Craig is a noted philosopher and theologian known for his work on the existence of God, philosophy of time, and the resurrection of Jesus. And we invite you to discover the wealth of resources at reasonablefaith.org. There you'll find Dr. Craig's famous debates with leading atheists, articles, books, podcasts, audio from Dr. Craig's Defenders class, and a question question and answer section featuring amazing questions people send us and answers from Dr. Craig. That's reasonablefaith.org. reasonablefaith.org. Well, Dr. Craig, I thought we had settled this whole thing concerning something called the Euthyphro dilemma, the Euthyphro argument, but it just keeps on coming up on Reasonable Faith on the website. Uh, lots of questions in the forum, lots of back and forth on this argument, an ancient argument. So I thought we would revisit it. In fact, I've got a clip here from a debate between an atheist and a Christian, and lo and behold, Euthyphro's argument comes up. No surprise. We'll interact with that clip just a little bit because um, he claims that what we usually say in response to this argument is not sufficient. So we will look at that. By the way, do you find it coming up yourself from time to time? Oh, the argument continues to be discussed all the time. I think it is the favorite atheist response to the moral argument for God's existence. And I think we can only be grateful for the continued discussion because the more this is discussed, I think the more it raises the question of the foundation for moral values and duties. And I think that it extols the greatness and majesty of God to understand who he is as the paradigm and source of all moral values. So we can be thankful that this discussion continues. Now, a dilemma is only a dilemma if there is no third alternative. You're caught on the horns of two dilemmas. Is that how it works? Two horns of the dilemma. That's exactly right. And I think that's what so many of our atheist friends who press this dilemma don't seem to understand, that to be a true dilemma, there has to be only two alternatives. But if there are more than two alternatives, then it's what we call a false dilemma, because there may be a third option or a fourth option or another option in addition to that. And so for the theist to defeat this dilemma, all he has to do is offer a third alternative. He doesn't have to prove that it's the truth. He just has to lay it out. And as long as that third alternative is available, it shows that the choice is a false one. You're not forced to choose A or B, as the atheist claims. You can choose C or D instead. Let's go to this audio clip then. All right. And any of our listeners are wondering what the Euthyphro Dilemma is, let me tell you that we, we've got several podcasts on it that you can uh, reference. And you can find it in Dr. Craig's work as well, uh, Study the Moral Argument. Also, we're going to let this atheist debater kind of spell out what it is. This is Dr. Zachary Moore, and it was in a debate on basically the moral argument 
I believe the name of the debate was, Is God Good? He here describes what the Euthyphro Dilemma is, and he interacts with it. Let's go to that clip now from Dr. Zachary Moore. Is God good because he creates the good, or because he recognizes the good? Now think about that. If he creates the good, if he decides what is good, then he could make anything good. He could make murder good if it was up to him. But if he just recognizes good, then why do we need God? If there's this other standard of good that God's recognizing, then why aren't we appealing to that as our objective standard and not God? Now, this dilemma has been challenged many times. Christian apologists have interacted with it. I'm sure God knows them. And the, the typical claim is that, well, it's, it's not that God creates the good or he recognizes the good. It's that he has this nature and this nature is necessarily good. But you see, this doesn't solve the problem. This just pushes the dilemma back one step. Because we can easily rephrase the dilemma like this. Is God's nature good because it creates the good? Or because it recognizes the good? And uh, we're, we're back in the same dilemma. Okay, now he claims that what you write about the third alternative that splits the horns of this dilemma is insufficient because it only pushes it back one step. Interact a little bit with that clip. He does try to attack the third alternative that I lay out, although he doesn't state it quite accurately. The way he states it is, God has this nature, which is necessarily good. That's not exactly right. Rather, what the alternative is that God is good because his nature is the good. His nature defines or determines what is the good. So that doesn't lead to this then further dilemma, which he wants to erect, that is God's nature good because it creates the good or because it recognizes the good? That question, in a sense, doesn't even make sense. Uh, Natures don't create anything or recognize anything anything. When you're talking about the nature of God, you're talking about his essential properties. And the nature of God neither creates nor recognizes things at all. So the whole question is is just malformed. Rather, what we want to say is that God's nature is the good and that this simply determines what goodness is. And therefore, to say, why is God's nature good or does it create the good or recognize the good, is to fail to understand the alternative. It's sort of like asking, well, is the good good because it creates the good or because it recognizes the good? Well, well, neither one. The good is good because it is the good. It defines what is the good. It is the standard. And it simply makes no sense to ask this further question. What it brings up then is, what is a nature? And what is God's nature? Right. And it tends to think of God's nature as some sort of a personal thing itself that can create or recognize things, when by God's nature, what we mean are his essential attributes or properties. And the whole concept here of the third alternative is that God's nature is definitive of what is good. So the the atheist, I think, would face exactly the same dilemma. I would ask him, how does he halt the infinite regress? What is his ultimate standard of goodness? And then you could ask the same question of that. Is it good because it 
creates the good or because it recognizes the good? Well, I'm sure he would say, well, neither one. It just is the good. It is the ultimate standard. And that's exactly what theists say about the nature of God. You're looking for a proper stopping point, and it's possible to have a a stopping point uh, rather than an infinite regress. Sure. Uh, Unless you're some sort of a moral nihilist, which I don't think he is, Uh, he he believes that there are objective values, right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And so he, as an atheist, will face exactly the same question, what is your stopping point that is definitive of what is good and evil? And it makes no sense to ask of that ultimate stopping point, whether it creates the good or recognizes the good. Rather, it just is the good. And the question then will be, is your ultimate stopping point a plausible stopping point? And I think that for the theist, we have a plausible stopping point in God because God is the metaphysical ultimate. There is nothing beyond God, nothing higher than God by definition. And moreover, God by definition, is a being that is worthy of worship. And any being that is worthy of worship, I think, will be the paradigm of goodness. So that by the very concept of God, this is a plausible stopping point. But any other stopping point based in some finite creature like humanity or rational consciousness or something like that, there the stopping point seems arbitrary and we wonder, well, why is that the stopping point? Um, that that question does seem to, to force itself upon us. With, where with God, I think you have a plausible stopping point for this regress that he wants to construct. Well, God's ultimate status provides that, it seems. I mean, he's ontologically, I think you said metaphysically, ultimate. Right. Yes, and, and the atheist agrees with that, that by by definition— God is the metaphysically ultimate. If he exists, he is. there's nothing beyond him. If something existed that were beyond God, were greater than God, then that would be God. So I think as St. Anselm rightly saw, God is the greatest conceivable being by definition. So God is a plausible stopping point for serving as the ultimate standard of moral goodness, whereas any finite thing is not a plausible stopping point for that sort of question. If God were somehow held to a standard of good beyond himself, what would that even look like? I mean, I think in some of your work, uh, you said that it would just kind of float. Well, I think it would be a sort of Platonism that you would have to have some sort of an abstract object, which is called the good with a capital G that would somehow exist apart from God, and God would conform his life to this abstract object. And that raises, I think, all sorts of difficult questions. As The one you just mentioned, I don't even understand what it means to say that the good exists independently of some concrete object that uh, that is good. I understand what it means to say, for example, that a person is good, or that some action is good. But I don't even understand what it means to say that the good just exists as an abstract object. And and think about this, Kevin. If the good is an abstract object, well, then the good itself is not good, 
because abstract objects aren't bearers of moral value. Uh, an abstract object is not just or merciful or loving or kind. So paradoxically, the good would not be good, which is seemingly incoherent. So I don't even understand, frankly, this kind of Platonist view of moral values. It seems to me far more plausible to think that moral values are embodied in persons and that God is an ultimate person and that persons are valuable because God is a person and God is the metaphysical ultimate. He, he defines what is goodness by his very nature. That is weird, isn't it, to think of that the good is somehow suspended or there and it's not, it's not personal. No, not as an abstract object. But, but but goodness and morality seem to be of persons. Yeah. And so it would have to be like um, chemical reaction, water on Alka-Seltzer or something. Somehow <laughs> it's it's there, and then when a person encounters it, it causes this reaction. That well, just and, and you know abstract objects don't stand in causal relations. That's right. You so don't they can't bump cause in, anything. You don't bump into the number seven. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, yeah. think about different moral virtues. Think about loyalty, for example. Loyalty is a good. So does, does loyalty exist as an abstract object? Yeah. And, and if it does, how is, how is that good? Because loyalty itself isn't loyal. It's not loyal to anybody. It's just this abstraction. So I, I, I really am quite honestly at a loss to understand how the Platonist can try to ground moral values as objective realities apart from their embodiment in God. I, I don't even understand what this means. Let's look at the, the briefly at the first horn of this false dilemma. I'd like to uh, maybe look at that a little bit in that it says that if God creates the good or if God determines what is good. That would be the more accurate way to state it. Determine rather than create. Yeah, the, the way Plato originally stated was, do the gods um, will or desire that which is good, or is that which is good good because the gods will or desire it? So it's not so much a matter of creating it as what, what is it that they will, or as you say, determine. Yeah, and I can hear people respond, well, yeah, but he wouldn't will murder or rape to be good. But is it a dilemma, that horn, because it makes God logically vulnerable to the extent that, that he could determine that murder or rape were good? No, that would be the alternative, you see, that says that what is good is good simply because God arbitrarily wills it. And as I say, that isn't the classical theistic position. There have been theists that have defended that view. William of Ockham, for example, would be what we call a voluntarist. Mm -hmm. And voluntarists say that the good is simply determined by God's fiat, that he just wills whatever is good or evil, and that's all there is to it. Well, what's wrong with that? That's a good question. The objection is that that makes morality arbitrary in the sense that God could have willed that we should rape and murder and hate one another, and then we would have been morally obligated to do that. And that seems counterintuitive. Now, yeah, what? Now, even if, I'm sorry to interrupt, but Bill, but even if he had the ability to do that, because whatever he determines by fiat is the good, that doesn't mean that he will. No. But since he logically could, since it's arbitrary, that's problematic. 
It's, it's almost like might makes right. Well, that's that's the idea. Yes, that's right. That's And that seems problematic to us that God could have willed that these things be good. These values seem to be necessary, that they hold in all possible worlds. So there is no possible world in which God willed that we would be morally obligated to hate and murder and rape one another. Now, Occam would respond to that by saying that you have that moral intuition only because God has declared and willed that these things are evil, and that if he had willed otherwise, you would have different intuitions. So Occam does have an answer to that in in defending his voluntarist view, but as I say, this represents a minority stream in the classical theistic tradition. Most theists have disagreed with Occam about that and would and would say that God's will is not arbitrary, but rather it's an expression, a necessary expression of his nature, of his essential attributes. And God's essential nature is such that it is impossible that God would will that murder and rape and theft and cruelty be goods. When you say moral Platonism, what is Platonism again? Well, Plato tried to solve the Euthyphro dilemma by saying that there is a thing called the good, which just exists as a sort of idea or abstract object. It would be similar to mathematical objects like, say, the perfect circle or the perfect triangle or the number seven. These things don't exist as concrete objects. They exist as abstract objects. And Plato thought that there had to be a sort of abstract object called the good, which determines what is good and what is evil by reference to it. Do you think he recognized the third alternative? No, he doesn't seem to have recognized it at all. We've got to remember this is before the influence of Judeo-Christian monotheism. This was in an age of polytheism where the gods of which Plato spoke were finite humanoid deities that were cavorting with one another, uh, copulating with human beings involved in war and hatred and rapine and so forth. I mean, these gods would not have been plausible stopping points for determining your moral good. So it's no wonder that Plato sought some sort of transcendent grounding for good beyond these finite humanoid deities that were part of the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses. What Plato said was not that there was a third alternative, but that if the gods do desire the good, the good must be something that is independent of and beyond the gods, some sort of transcendent good. Now, Jews, when they came along and confronted Plato's thoughts, said, yes, that's right, and the good is God, not these humanoid finite deities of the Greco-Roman myths, but the God of Judeo-Christian theism. He is the good that Plato sought. So early Christian thinkers were very sympathetic to Plato because they identified God with the good. And I think they were quite right in doing so because, as I said, if you just take Plato's view that the good is not embodied in some concrete person or object, then as an abstraction, it's hard to understand how it can even exist or have any sort of moral properties 
itself. And here's another problem for this Platonic moral realism, thinking of the good as some sort of uh, an abstract object. Namely, I don't see how that provides any source for moral duty or moral obligation. Our goal in crafting an ethical system is not just to have a standard for objective moral values, but also a basis for moral duty or moral obligation. Why am I obligated to do this? Why am I forbidden from doing that? What is the source of moral obligation or duty? Now, having some abstract object, which is the good, doesn't lay any kind of moral duty or obligation upon me. Why am I obligated to align my life with this abstract object out there? Suppose that loyalty and mercy and kindness and generosity exist as abstract objects. How does that lay any sort of moral duty upon me to align my life with these abstract objects? After all, on Platonism, presumably there are moral vices that also exist as abstract objects. Greed, rapacity, hatred, cruelty, these also exist as abstract objects. Why am I morally obligated to align my life with one set of these abstract objects rather than the other? There just isn't any source in Platonism for moral duty or obligation. And what theism provides is a source of moral prohibition and moral obligation in the commands of a holy and loving God. God is not only the standard of moral goodness, but that standard issues in commandments for us that express God's nature, that are constitutive of our moral duties or obligations. And so what theism gives you is not only a sound foundation for moral value, but it gives you a basis for moral obligation and duty as well. Thank you, Dr. Craig, for spending some time with us. And thank you, the listener, for being here today. This podcast is available at reasonablefaith.org, as well as a wealth of audio, video, and written materials from William Lane Craig. People all over the world have benefited from the insights of Dr. Craig, and we invite you to browse our resources at reasonablefaith.org. And when you give to Reasonable Faith or purchase our resources, you help us expand into more media and speaking events, taking Christ to a world of big questions. So be sure and visit us at reasonablefaith.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Reasonable Faith with William Lane Craig.